This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org donate. Thanks for your support. Just Now by W.S. Merwin In the morning, as the storm begins to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment. And it seems to me that there has always been something simpler that I could ever believe, simpler that I could have begun to find words for. And patient, not patient, excuse me, not patient, not even waiting, no more hidden than the air itself. And that became a part of me for a while, with every breath and remained with me unnoticed. Something that was here unnamed, unknown in the days and the nights, not separate from them. Not separate from them as they came and were gone. It must have been here, neither early nor late then. By what name can I address it now? Holding out my thanks. So this is a wonderful, mysterious Dogan-esque poem by W.S. Merwin. And W.S. Merwin, who's alive, still alive, he's elderly, um, has been United States Poet Laureate, has been Pulitzer Prize winner in poetry, won many awards. He also wrote the foreword to The Way of Everyday Life, which um, is a, a book of commentary on the Genja Koan, written by Maizumi Roshi, Daito Roshi's teacher, and accompanied by photographs by Daito Roshi. Uh, photographic... The Genja Koan is the way of everyday reality, is the translation of that, and it's a seminal work. It's the first work, the sh- first chapter of the Shobo Genzo, and it's a work that I've studied for decades, uh, um, about the nature of reality, direct pointing about the reality, and it's poetic in its nature, that chapter. Uh, and so um, W.S. Merwin is a accomplished and studied Buddhist, and in much of his poetry, you it intersects with how Dogen writes, because you can't grasp it, and yet it's recognizable. In that introduction, he writes... Uh, and only someone who has insight can write like this. <laughs> phrase after phrase, writing about Dogen, suggests or assumes two aspects related not by logic, but by some deeper implication, and points through both. Later on, he says, the vision, the knowledge towards which the teachings of Zen claims to directors are said to be clear beyond any clarity. Any clarity that we could hope to describe, but that the way to the intuitive certainty does not always appear to be simple. So he's he's really pointing at the ungraspable nature of fundamental reality of ourself, 
and our own experience moment to moment. The name of this poem is Just Now. Just Now. And how that's ungraspable, yet apparent. And in some way we sense it and have some connection with it if we can just slow down and hear it and be with it. And this poem is a remarkable poem because it points at that. And, you know, if you try and grasp it intellectually, if you're too close or too far, if you're too close and trying to grab every word, um, then you're also too far. You're not intimate with it. You have to kind of be with it, just like with your breath and zazen. If you try and grab it and manipulate it and work it so that you know it and it's yours, you, you, you can't. You miss it completely. You're entwined in yourself. Uh, and yet, if you're not involved with the breath, then it's, what's going on? I'm just sitting here breathing. Um, so uh, it misses the, the magic and the mystical perspective of ourself that is ourself. So the, just now, this moment, here, now is the entirety of your life. Your whole life is here now. It's not a summation of your life, not at all. It is your life. All of it. All that you have experienced before this is here now. In you, as you. Okay, well, maybe I can buy that. But all that is to come is here, now, in you. Being asleep is our default way to exist. It's a basic form of existence. It uses our intellect, our feelings, our thoughts to guide us. So it makes complete sense. Um, Yesterday we had a workshop on the inner critic, which is a person that lives with us, a voice in our head. Uh, um, I once gave a talk on, you talk too much, you can't shut up. Well, that's the inner critic. <laughs> you know, that's always criticizing us. And, you know, among the features of the inner critic is when will it be satisfied? Never. When will it stop criticizing? Never. And so your best bet is to make friends with this. And, and yet, the inner critic is so smart, its IQ is 500, 1,000. And so every time we try to out-manipulate it and out-think um, it, it's way ahead of us. And during the retreat, somebody, in a, in a side moment, came up and said, well, you know, I've worked with this, and I've solved this problem using the energies of the inner critic because, you know, I know... How to, you know, I see it and I know how to do it. And, da, 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 da. and I'm listening and I'm going. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, you poor person, <laughs> you know, it's got you by the, <laughs> you know, you know, we, we think we're outsmarting these voices in our head. That's not going to happen ever. Um, but we have to listen and we have to honor them from the place of Zazen because they ain't going away. In any case, it's easy to be on this autopilot that features the inner critic, that features the sense of self that is designed to protect us from pain 
and is powerful in whatever way it manifests in our particular being, um, and is subtle. And is and because of this, because because of our, we each have a such a strong, powerful sense of ourself. Um, it's the only vision that we usually can see. It's all that we know, so we act out of it. It makes perfect sense. It's what we know. It's what we're programmed to see. So it's a self-referential programming. I was reading an article recently about AI and some of the challenges, and they're really getting now into some of the subtle challenges. So they nailed down all the ways to program AI, and it takes all the information, and it arrives at conclusion after conclusion after conclusion that's helpful. And then all of a sudden, when it goes off the rails, it is so far off the rails that it's amazing that any human being would immediately recognize that this is totally upped, you know, totally. Um, so they, they did a program um, in Pittsburgh about um, uh, asthma patients who are hospitalized, seriously ill, in danger of dying and in the ICU, and when to send them home and when not, using artificial intelligence. And it went off the rails. It it suggested they didn't put it in effect because they were studying it. That, you know that certain patients under certain circumstances should be sent home. Those patients are going to die, um, and and the artificial intelligence program was doing exactly what it was told. It was using the information it was told, but it wasn't actually artificial intelligence. It was artif- you know it was using data, so there was no human there to say, "What? You know that's crazy." It's not crazy to AI. It's just following the program. We just follow the program. It's not crazy to us. It makes complete sense to us. So it's self-referential. You know, our sense of our being me. And how strong and how powerful is that? And how will we manipulate our sense of reality to get what we want, that me that wants? And in a way, it's a very sophisticated child's view. Interestingly enough, simply the world is about me and mine. That's it. Nothing else that I have to worry about. It's about me. And I can, you know, surround that with all ways of making that make sense, um, that my actions are about you. They're about saving all beings. They're about practicing Zen. They're about, you know, being kind. They're about, you know, creativity. They're about helping people, whatever we want. And yet, it's really about me. And so we're forgotten by ourself in each moment of creating ourself. We forget our true self in that moment. And in this ongoing habitual self-creation of me, you know, pretty much all else is, is exiled from the reality that's before me because we see through the eyes of me. And that's what we pick up and that's what we translate and that's what we emote. And there is attention to other. There is attention to you. But it's devalued. It doesn't carry the same weight. Simply because it's not about me. I'm, you know, umwa. You know, I'm number one. You know. And so the interesting perspective of this is that we are so captured by our self-regard 
And it's so invisible that we have trouble recognizing that we're trapped in a worldview that is guaranteed to bring a sense of distance from our true being, from our whole being. It's guaranteed, it's built in, and thus the first noble truth, that life, as we ordinarily understand it through this perspective, inherently brings anxiety. It always brings anxiety. It never does not bring anxiety. It can't. The anxiety is built into that worldview because it's not true. Simply because it's not reality. It seems to be reality. It's a reality we create and we trust and we act at it. And there doesn't seem to be other options, does there? And yet, there it is. So what's of value to our vast yet subtle self-concern is what we want, what we desire, what we wish to avoid, or what we wish to kind of be passive and asleep to. So as the storm begins to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment. When a rare moment of wakefulness occurs, we notice this is something different. We awaken for a brief moment. Here we are. And we and everything else, we and everything else is the entirety. There is no we and everything else. It's just, you know, what we have no words to express. As the storm begins to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment. Yet for most of us, most of the time, That is all there is of a sense of me being so much more to our life than what we're experiencing, that brief glimpse. And it comes through. You see it in creativity. You see it in this poem. You see it in lots of ways. But, so this is another poem that I've read before, but so it haunts me. uh, And I hope it will haunt you if you haven't heard it, or if you have, continue to haunt you. It's called The Panther. And it's, but it's the first poem that Raina Maria Rilke wrote. So he comes across a panther that's in a cage in a zoo. His vision from the constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him that there are a thousand bars and behind the bars, no world. As he paces in cramped circles over and over, the movement of his powerful soft strides is like a ritual dance around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed. Only at times, the curtain of the pupils lifts quietly. An image enters in rushes down through the tensed, arrested muscles, glimpses, plunges into the heart, and is gone. This uh, image that's entering, that plunges through the tensed, arrested muscles, plunges into the heart. It's not a thought. It's who we are. It's who we fundamentally are. It's who we've always been. It's the clear sky 
appearing for a moment. Have you ever experienced this? The clear sky appearing for a moment? Not just as a wonderful open moment, but as a living possibility of how you can live your life. A moment that all of the time has been present in the wakefulness of the clear sky. It's always been there, has never not been there. What happens to the clarity of the clear sky? Look to your own experience. In the openness of the moment, it's the fullness we reach for. We try and make hours to contain. And then it plunges into the heart and is gone. As we reach to grasp it, we've taken wholeness and turned it into two or more things. Is the fullness of reality, the being time of this moment of our life, graspable? I mean, look at this moment of our life. As soon as we try and grasp it, it's gone. It's another moment. And another moment. There's no way to hold this moment. And in trying to hold it, we're distant from the moment of our life. And we do that moment after moment after moment in subtle and pervasive ways. And yet this glimpse, no matter how we try and grasp it, is crucial. It shows us that our life of small meaning and limitless desires of greediness and grasping, of knowing so much, of knowing so much about ourselves and our circumstances, and realizing directly so little, that this is not limited by our fear, or by our anger, by our desires, by our restlessness, for the next moment of interest. Our life is much, much more. Does this much, much more of your life interest you? Does it mean something to you beyond some vague interest? Beyond hearing some talk on a Sunday in a Zen temple that in my worst moments I call, I'm teaching entertainment Zen? A little bit sarcastically. That's my inner critic. In the morning, as the storm begins to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment. And it seems to me that there has been something simpler that I could ever believe, simpler that I could ever begin to find words for. Can you feel the backward step here? the not reaching, the stepping back from the grasping and the desire, the stepping back from the holding on. Far simpler, I I say all the time, be stupid. Be stupid. Don't be so smart. Our awakened mind is not something that can be claimed by our sense of ourself. Our sense of me is too small to hold me. It's too small to hold this. Our original nature, our original face. I love this way of expressing our fundamental being, our original face, our true face. I've said many times before, when people come out of session, a full week of sitting, and you look at their face, you see their true face. 
It's wide open. It's clear. Nobody's wearing makeup. Nobody has their hair combed. Everybody's a little smelly. You know, the men who are more experienced haven't shaved in a week. You know, you know, your hair isn't done just right. It's your true face. There's no pretty picture here. It's your true. It holds the whole thing. Suffering and joy. All of your life. Original face. So simple. So available. It's right here. It's has always been here. We have very busy minds. A lot of noisy stuff going on in our heads. And to begin to encounter what is so simple, our minds freed of the constant buzz of thought, judgment, of weighted assessment that we constantly hold on to and project to ourselves and to others. That's what we stake our life on, this constant assessment, these constant things that we value. And I'm not saying they don't have value, but that consumes us. That takes up, takes up all the space in our hard drive. So to begin to encounter what is so simple, our minds freed of this constant buzz of thought. We're constantly creating ourselves, recreating ourselves moment after moment. And you can't see that except through Zazen. You cannot see that recreation of thought except when there's some slowing down and stillness. When you go out that door, you're not going to see that unless you're really attending and taking the energy of your Zazen into your life. So we're constantly recreating ourselves and doing so, constantly having to protect and defend what we're creating. Me. It's a lot of energy. It's a life of energy, of protecting me. So I want to take us back to Siddhartha, before he was the Buddha. He'd gone through a lot. He'd been searching. He had done spiritual practice his whole life. He had walked away from his family, from his inheritance of a kingdom. And he had taken different paths, and the last path he had taken was the ascetic path, denial. And at some point he realized, if I do this another day, I'm going to die. And so Sujata, a village girl, came along and sees this suffering, starving, about-to-die mendicant and offers him some rice. And he has a decision, and he makes that decision, and he eats his rice. And then he has to decide what to do. Now what do I do? I, I once <clears throat> did a personal hermitage, determined, determined to have a die kensho. And die means, there's two meanings here. One is great Kensho, and the other means die. <laughs> and I almost did, because I did some really stupid things in an attempt. There's some stories in Zen where people have sat in trees, so they had to attend themselves, attend to their wakefulness and mindfulness so much because if they fell asleep, they'd fall out of the tree and die. Well, I didn't do that, but I did equivalent to it. I was so desperate and in so much pain. And so you do your time, and now it's time to leave, and you go, oh, so what? Didn't work. (laughs) Um, So that's 
basically where he was. So I'm going to pick up the narration there. And it's, it's a piece, so stay with me, because I think it's worth listening to. <clears throat> Feeling much better, he walked to the river's edge. There he washed. The riverbank was lined with some very tall crusher grass. Siddhartha gathered a good bundle of it and returned to the forest. Under the uh, pipple tree, there's a pipple tree outside the door. What a coincidence, if you want to know what a pipple tree looks like. Siddhartha arranged the crusher grass into a seat and sat down. In his heart, Siddhartha knew that his long, solitary meditation was about to enter a new phase. He remembered his very first meditation under a rose apple tree. It was the day of the first plowing of the fields. The tradition was that people would dress in fine clothes to attend a big ceremony held outside the fields. Flags and colorful cloths hung from the trees. Many tables were set up as altars upon which the finest foods and drink were placed. The holy men of the Brahmin class would, would chant prayers to ask for blessings. They prayed that the fields would yield healthy and, and plentiful crops. And so it was on that day when Siddhartha was nine that King Sudodana, his royal family, and all his ministers attended the ceremony. Many children were there. They loved this day because after the prayers and chanting, they were to enjoy the most delicious cakes and sweets. Nevertheless, the prayer readings proved too much too long and soon the children tired. The ladies-in-waiting led them to the outer fields to watch the actual plowing. Siddhartha was among them. So again, he's recollecting this from where to go and what to do next, and he's thinking back to his childhood. In the field, a man naked to the waist was prodding a water buffalo to pull a plow. It was very close to noon, and the sun shone relentlessly on his bare back. He was sweating profusely and visibly tired from walking up and down in the field, making the furrows. Intermittently, he would whip the reluctant buffalo. The buffalo had to pull very hard with the yoke upon its body. Its hooves gripped the ground beneath it as its large body inched forward, dragging the heavy plow behind it. The plow turned up the soil, exposing the worms that made, made their homes there. Other worms writhed in pain as they had just been cut in half. Siddhartha then realized why so many small birds were hovering near the ground. They, they were eating the live, defenseless worms and other tiny bugs that laid bare for easy pickings. Just then, a hawk swooped down and caught one of the small birds. With its lunch secured in its claws, it took to the air again, giving out the loud cry of a master of the sky. I just want to note, I experience this all the time, because I, you know, about half my time is spent in the farmland of Pennsylvania, of which is the hawks live. Siddhartha watched in silence. He felt the toil of the man who plowed, plowed the field in the hot sun. He felt the struggle of the water buffalo chained in the plow. He felt the pain of the worms cut by the plow. It was heart-wrenching to witness the worms, the insects and the small birds losing their lives so abruptly. 
Siddhartha felt their fear, their pain, and the unpredictability of life itself. The noonday sun was extremely hot. Siddhartha took shelter under a rose apple tree. The leaves provided a much-needed shade away from the heat. He sat down on a stone slab. He curled up his legs to rest on the cool surface of the stone. He straightened his body to gather his breath. He rested his hands on his lap. With his eyes lowered, Siddhartha reflected on the scene that had transpired in the field. He sat detached from the noises of the children laughing and playing around him. After sitting quietly for a while, Siddhartha noticed that his thoughts subsided. He experienced a calm and clean, clear awareness from within. He recognized that the man, the water buffalo, the birds, and the worms had one thing in common. Each of them was tied to the conditions of its life. A worm was tied to the condition that it was a food source for birds. A small bird was bound by the condition that it might fall prey to the larger birds. A water buffalo had to live its life in in captivity and work for its captors. Siddhartha continued to look deeper. He recognized that life's conditions brought fear and pain at times and enjoyment at other times. In one moment, the small bird was enjoying the worms. In the next moment, it was food for the hawk. Moreover, Siddhartha observed that the conditions were different for everybody. Some animals enjoyed a greater degree of freedom and safety than others. The peacocks of the royal gardens certainly led a better existence than that of the water buffalo. It was the same with people. Some were good-looking and some were not. Some were strong while some were weak. Some were smart and some were dumb. One thing stood out above all else, regardless of what conditions they were born with. All living beings wanted to avoid suffering. All living beings with us interconnected with one another through this universal wish to be happy. Siddhartha himself was no exception. It was through his own experience of heat, pain, fear, fatigue, that he was able to connect with the the man, the water buffalo, the worms, and the birds in the field. His want of happiness and his aversion to suffering connected him to the experience of others. Without the common ground of experience, there could be no connection. Siddhartha remembered the time when he tried to describe the taste of chocolate to his attendant, who had never tasted chocolate. He could not. Those of you who know me will know how much I relate to that last statement. In the morning, as the storm began to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment. And it seems to me that there has been something simpler that I could ever believe simpler that I could ever begun to find words for. Not patient, not even waiting, no more hidden than the air itself. As we begin to see what has been present all along, that's what we're doing here, seeing what has been present all along. We see for ourselves 
directly, directly out of our own experience, not mediated by thought, not mediated by emotion. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that's not what's going on. We see for ourselves directly what this body, what your body is, and what does not lodge inside or outside as me or you. And we see this as completely apparent to our open eye. It is not hidden. It has never been hidden. It's completely present. It has been me, me, all along. So familiar, so close, there is no distance. I am I. I am I is the same realization. The two eyes are not the same. Before awakening, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. I. Me. With awakening, there are no mountains. Rivers are not rivers. After awakening, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. That first and last statement are not the same rivers and mountains, nor are they different. But your perspective and understanding of them of me, is completely different. In the morning, as the storm begins to blow away, the clear sky appears for a moment, and it seems to me that there has been something simpler that I could ever believe, simpler that I could ever begin to find words for. Not patient, not even waiting. No more hidden than the air itself that became part of me for a while, with every breath, remained with me unnoticed. Something that was not here unnamed, unknown in these days. Let me read that again. Something that was not here, unnamed, unknown in the days, and the nights that separate, not separate from them. Not separate from them as they came and were gone, It must have been here, neither early nor late then. Our original nature, our face before our parents were born. You who are unborn and undying, we use these words, terms to describe the indescribable. And yet, It is just you. No boundary of you yourself. Our practice is to carefully, oh so carefully, see for ourselves what this just you is, what this just now is. That's what our practice is. And no point along the way are we given the gift neatly wrapped of understanding it so it fits into our reference system. Now that does happen, but it's not your original face. It's something else. So this is very personal, this practice of waking up, completely personal. 
It's so intimate. It is you yourself in the specifics of your life, nobody else's life. Your suffering is your suffering. Your distance from your life is your distance from your life. Nobody else is involved here. It's just you. It's just you sitting down on the side of the field. And in those moments of clarity, seeing the plowmen and the buffalo and the worms and the birds. It's just you. It does not project. Not onto someone else, not onto something else, not into any other sense of who we are, not into all our cleverness and ways of manipulating our mind, not to figuring it out, not to making it something that we can grasp and hold and be secure on, secure in, because we've been doing that our whole life, grasping and holding and been secure in our sense of ourself. How's that working for you? Are you free of anxiety? Are you happy? I don't mean happy in the Lala sense. I mean happy in knowing that your life is the life you should be leading. It's the full life, and you're willing to live it and die it just as it is. So if you've never questioned in this way, this may seem strange to look at things from this perspective. And if so, we're back to the panther, aren't we? In our cages, endlessly circling around a center that will never change. That panther. It seems to him there are a thousand bars, and behind the, behind the bars, no world. Just bars. We may not even understand... that from a perspective that centers on me, no bars are apparent. So all that we are able to see is our apparent immediate sense of ourself manifesting and getting what we want and avoiding what we don't. And yet, our original face is present even in that. It's always present. It's never not been present. The fundamental freedom of you is always present and available. No matter where or who we are, no one is excluded from this. When we turn to actually looking, to actually carefully looking with a clear and deep intent, with a sense of purpose of how important this is, in this one life we have to live as ourself, as our separate sense of self, in this single life that we have, this precious life, when we dedicate that to that, and nothing else needs to change except that energy of dedication, we will see. Not as a switch, not as a yes or no, but as a, a gradual infiltration of reality as ourself. It's a transformation. And at no point along the line do you see or understand the transformation, but you are experiencing it, and you are aware of it. We will become clearer. And perhaps we can recollect. Only at times the curtain of the pupils lifts quietly, and an image enters, rushes down through the tensed, arrested muscles, and plunges into the heart. 
original face, our very source, is not yours and it's not mine. It's just. It's just. And when we live out of just, we may cry in appreciation of how blessed we are to be able to just cry. And it seems to me that there has been something simpler than I could ever believe, simpler than I could ever begin to find words for. And so Merwin ends his ode to awakening with these lines. By what name can I address it now? Holding out my thanks. How can I address it in gratitude? Here's how. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org.